to hear my conversation with our co-CIOs, Leslie Marks and Steve Law. We talk all about the recent failures of U.S. banks and what that can mean to investors. I hope you enjoy. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Information relating to investment approaches or individual investments should not be construed as advice or endorsement. Listeners should seek professional advice for their situation. Welcome to the McKenzie Investments Podcast. My name is Matthew Schnur, and I'm delighted to be here with Steve Locke and Leslie Marks, our co-CIOs. Uh, Steve, Leslie, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Matt. Thank you, Matt. Uh, we've uh, decided to have a bit of an emergency podcast, call it, uh, on the uh, back of two banks in the U.S. Uh, um, effectively being insolvent. Uh, you know, clearly uh, some cause for concern. But Leslie, maybe I'll start with you. How, how did we get here? Paint the general picture of, of where we stand now. Sure. And I think this is a really important podcast for our listeners um, to address in a timely fashion. So thank you for giving Steve and I the opportunity here today. Um, you know, things started to move very quickly last week, Thursday, Friday, with news from Silicon Valley Bank. And, you know, maybe even going back um, further than the events of the last few days. If you look at a company like Silicon Valley Bank, which is a regional bank in the U.S., you could see that this was a bank that really benefited uh, throughout the pandemic with a lot of the capital that was directed towards the technology, biotech, healthcare space. So when you look at the stock chart, you can see that it had a historical uh, time of great outperformance during that period and really benefited from the uh, excessive liquidity that was in the market and a lot of that liquidity that was directed towards those sectors. So fast forward to the recent period and when markets started to peak in early 2022 and we started to see money flowing out of that sector, you started to see a real turning of the tide with the outlook for their business, which really was not diversified. They had strong relationships with VC and private equity firms, and they were really in sort of all the hot, high growth businesses. So as activity started to dry up and companies started to burn cash, um, they started to pull deposits out. And so those inflows turned into outflows. And what you really ended up with here was uh, a combination of a mismatch in assets and liabilities that was exacerbated by the rapid increase in interest rates. And so when you saw Silicon Valley Bank announcing that they had to sell assets and realize losses in the last couple of days of last week, um, there ended up uh, being what we would call sort of a conventional or classic run on the bank where uh, investors were trying to pull money quickly out of Silicon Valley Bank, particularly because deposits over $250,000 were not insured. So Thursday, that, that was Thursday's story. And the bank was really trying to shore up their balance sheet with an equity financing, which failed. And then we all know what happened uh, Friday when the bank was taken over by regulators. Over the weekend, as this started to reverberate through the system, of course, this had an impact on other regional banks with less diversified businesses and also lower regulatory requirements. And we saw another bank also taken over by regulators, which was Signature Bank. 
Great. Um, so the great context for, for the base of the conversation. Um, I'm curious, and I think that everybody listening uh, will ver- revert back to uh, 2008, uh, the last time we sort of uh, saw bank failures uh, happen. And uh, let's say lightly, it didn't end very well uh, for the global economy. Uh, do you think that this has the makings of uh, a potentially another Lehman moment or even a Bear Stearns moment, uh, which is a, a sign of uh, stress to come? Well, I don't want to take away from the fact that this is historically significant because it is a historically significant event, but it's a little bit different than what we saw in the 2007-2008 period in the sense that there were some things that were very unique to Silicon Valley Bank. Like I highlighted um, the uh, lower regulatory hurdles for regional banks, um, also the um, concentration in a certain sector, so a less diversified asset base and customer base, as well as a low percentage of um, insured uh, deposits. So there were some things that were very unique to to the regional banking environment and probably coming out the other side of this will result in higher regulation. Um, Remember, there was the whole strategically important bank uh, concept that came forward as a result of what happened in 2007, 2008. And a lot of those regulations didn't apply to these regional banks, which is how we got here today. So I don't want to diminish the importance and the contagion that is spreading through the regional banking sector. But as you've seen in some of the larger banks today and the reaction in the market is they're sort of flattish, um, not really an expectation that the negative contagion is going to spread to those banks. But hopefully they will actually become beneficiaries of some of the deposits and, and banking customers that would have traditionally worked with some of these regional banks will probably move towards the larger, more diversified banks. And again, I want to reiterate, especially here in Canada as well, with our strategically important banking system, that we have much higher regulatory hurdles, um, which would prevent a situation like the run on the bank that we saw uh, with SVB. Great. Steve, maybe uh, next question uh, to you. Uh, maybe you can walk through the rescue plan that was uh, announced yesterday. What are some of the details and what impact has that uh, plan had? Yeah, sure, Matt. Um, you know, I think I'll just build on a couple of things that Leslie said as well, that, uh, you know, when it comes to the rescue plan, it's are important to, to distinguish here. Um, so, you know, as Leslie mentioned that, you know, that this is not a this this test of liquidity and solvency really was focused on business models and but in particular those business models being exacerbated by the the changes that we've seen in yields over the last uh, 12 to 14 months so with yields rising the way they have so aggressively with Fed, central bank actions what happened was we have a portion of every bank's portfolio which is not marked to market uh, but is effectively priced much lower today than it was 12 months ago so right. think about those rising yields affecting treasury bond prices and mortgage-backed security prices, including in the holdings of Silicon Valley Bank or Signature Bank and others. Um, so as the deposits start to flow out, as Leslie mentioned, you know, given the banking models that those uh, those institutions have, and perhaps where at the margin in some of the other regional banks, there may be a similar experience. As customers got nervous, the banks had to uh, actually turn some of those unrealized losses on their treasury portfolios into realized losses, which effectively eats up capital. So Silicon Valley Bank, in fact, did this last week, having to sell about two point one, uh, sorry, uh, twenty-one billion dollars of uh, Treasury and MBS debt. That 
turned into $1.8 billion of losses that they had to realize. And that's effectively reducing their capital. So this is a, this is a situation that every bank faces in some context around some of the assets that they hold. But let's distinguish it from the global financial crisis. These are AAA rated assets that are truly AAA and they have a mark to market issue. These are not credit losses. These aren't defaults. These aren't um, issues of subprime lending where far too much credit has been handed out to borrowers, perhaps that, that uh, when economic cycles turn, are not going to be able to pay that back. So this is a different situation entirely. And ultimately, uh, when we think about the, the regulations that have come in place since the GFC, we've seen a lot of re-regulation of banks that included you know, lifting of tier one capital ratios. Uh, that are they're much higher today than they, they have been in prior cycles. So this this is a, a certainly when we look at the banking sector in whole, we see a much more solid picture than we did in 2007, 2008. Uh, regulations around um, reserves, uh, liquidity ratios have all come into effect. So there isn't the same conditions precedent for a, a more global financial crisis today. And this is really more linked to the interest rate cycle that we've seen over the past 12 months combined with particular banks and how that they have financed themselves through their deposit base. So what what did, what happened then since uh, since Friday? Well, obviously with the, uh, as Leslie mentioned, the inability for Silicon Valley Bank to raise capital, um, the, the challenge became one that was at the feet of the FDIC. Um, they, they effectively took the bank into receivership on Friday and it became a situation now of how can depositors get their money out? And the answer is in general, when you're in receivership, it may take some time to work through the capital structure to pay out to depositors and other secured and unsecured creditors, uh, let alone, you know, anything in the sub debt or equity uh, zone of the cap structure. So, right. uh, however, time is of the essence in a situation like this. And ultimately what that means is that we saw on Sunday, the Fed, the FDIC and the Treasury got together and put in place some packages to support depositors, both in terms of liquidity and access to those deposits, as well as effectively forms of guarantees uh, that extended to secured and uh, unsecured depositors. So. So the insured depositors effectively got uh, are getting their money back and uninsured depositors as well. And this is important in the context of what Leslie mentioned for some businesses that were uh, extricably linked to uh, to uh, Silicon Valley Bank in particular, tech companies who have high cash burn rates who need access to their cash, need to meet payroll this week. Those those businesses will have access as of today to their deposits. So that's encouraging. So the, so one of the things that happened then is the FDIC came in and said, we will open up access to those depositors. Um, the second thing they said is that we're going to, we're going to basically a backstop all depositors insured or uninsured for those two banks. And now this is interesting because it opens up the moral hazard question again, right. uh, for the U S banking system. Uh, what's different in this situation from the global financial crisis is that the FDIC and the Fed and the Treasury are not injecting capital here, uh, nor are they uh, specifically looking to keep these banks alive. What they're doing is they're saying, depositors, you can get your money out. We'll absorb the uh, the the uh, 
the mark to market on these portfolios and ultimately wind these banks up as, as we can. And this is, this is important because it means that we are going to realize losses to equity holders and to unsecured bondholders in these cap structures. So again, differentiating it from the bailouts of the global financial crisis to a great degree. Um, so last thing is, what, what do they actually put in place? So around this, this effort, they did a couple of things at the Fed. The Fed uh, took its normal discount window operations for emergency lending, which are 90-day uh, loans against collateral to the banking system. This is, a, this is a facility that's always in place. What they did there is they, they said, we will take collateral, treasuries and MBS, and rather than saying you will have to take a haircut to get a loan against that collateral, they're actually going to take that collateral at par. So in other words, at assuming 100 cents on the dollar, when in fact, if you think about the rate cycles that we've just been through for the last 12 months, those are actually priced below par. So that's a, that is a, a, a neat feature uh, to avoid this sort of mark-to-market problem for those assets that are currently on the balance sheet. The second thing is they, they started a new uh, facility called the Bank Term Funding Program. Uh, this is going to be fu- funded under the, um, the uh, Treasury Exchange Program that they had set up previously. And what this will do is it will give one-year loans to banks, so one-year term loans to banks, again, with the same uh, collateral uh, pricing and conditions as I just described for the discount window. So that means you can effectively pledge a, uh, a security as collateral for a one-year loan, and that will be at 100 cents on the dollar, no matter what the price of that security is today. So good, a good program to really install confidence for depositors. And in general, this is open to every financial institution that's a qualifying financial institution under, under the Fed's rules. So banks that we're not talking about today have access to these emergency lending facilities and can effectively avoid then the drawdowns on capital if they had to realize losses in those bond portfolios that they hold on their balance sheet. That's a great explanation. Uh, makes makes a lot of sense uh, what you just walked through and uh, presumably providing a lot of confidence for uh, those depositors uh, within the, the uh, insolvent banks. I'm curious, you, you started your comments off by talking about uh, the rapid rise in yields and that being part of the reason uh, that we're uh, faced with this situation. Um, we have a Fed meeting coming up uh, next week. Bank of Canada just met uh, last week and, and they stayed uh, uh, s- uh, still on their interest rate policies. I'm curious, how does, how does this impact the outlook for future hikes uh, from, uh, from the Fed? And, and how will they take it into consideration along with, of course, inflation and, and growth that uh, they've been dealing with for the past year? Yeah, Matt, we get, uh, we're, we're recording this on the 13th. We're getting CPI in the U.S. tomorrow on the 14th. And, right. and this, there's obviously uh, going to be some interest in that number. Now, probably less interest than there was before, to be clear. Uh, we have seen a, uh, the inflation rate month over month coming down over the last several months in the U.S. So the trends to lower annual inflation rates seem to be in the cards, obviously, even from the base effects as we look at the months ahead of us with the high monthly prints we saw a year ago on inflation. So that, that's, that's the expectation currently. Now, um, yes, the Fed meets next week. And if you think about what's been going on over the past month, the, Fed, the terminal Fed funds rate uh, at the beginning of February was priced in and around 
So sub 5% Fed funds is where we expected the, the high uh, rate to be from the market's projections uh, at that time. And during the month of February, what we saw is we just saw a reset into early March. And if we go to the beginning of March, so just last week, what we saw was that the, uh, the Fed funds futures market was pricing a terminal rate closer to 5.5%. Right. And of course, uh, uh, Jay Powell's testimony to Congress, plus other central bank governors who were speaking in the weeks before that were, were suggesting that the Fed needed to continue to hike. And the, the odds of a 50 basis point rate hike at next week, the Fed, on, on March 22nd, the Fed meeting uh, was, was more or less being uh, priced in as a middle of last week. Well, today, if we look at it, the terminal Fed funds rate is now back down to 4.7%, according wow. to the Fed funds futures market. So we've gone completely round trip on that, um, if, if not more so. And the market's grappling with whether or not we should even see 25 basis points from the Fed next week at their meeting. I think they'll go 25, Matt. Um, it's it's uh, where I've been actually all along. I wasn't really buying the 50 too much, although the market was pricing quite a bit of that in. Um, and we were, uh, you know, we were really uh, looking at this hard last week in our portfolios, actually, just to take a little sidestep to talk about activity. But we had been boosting duration and number of mandates middle of last week because we felt that the odds of a 50 basis point hike were overpriced uh, for the meeting. Nevertheless, now we're looking at is a truncated, uh, by the market's estimate, truncated move in Fed funds compared to just a week ago. And you know, part of the, the idea behind that, I think, relates to what Leslie and I have talked about so far, is that with the questions now around some aspects of the banking system, again, there's a lot of support that's come in here from the Fed and FDIC, but with right. some questions around that, including questions that lead into the profitability of some areas of the banking system immediately in the future, combined with the financial tightening that the Fed has already put in place, you know, we would expect that that in of itself nets out to financial tightening, monetary tightening effectively, but financial tightening uh, in the system that's still coming forward here. So the Fed may not have to do as much. Um, and that's what the market is pricing today. If we look at the changes uh, just literally in the last three days within the bond market itself, the U.S. Treasury curve, um, the two-year yield has dropped more than 100 basis points in the last wow. two to three days, which is quite extraordinary. That's great. So uh, just to uh, confirm your, your view, Steve, uh, the expectation, 25 basis points at the next meeting, but you do think that the market is uh, reasonable in pricing in a lower terminal rate than was previously suggested? Yes, I do, Matt. I think, though, that we may see the Fed continue to hike if, if we see inflation still a little too high going into the summer. And we don't see any more dramatic slowing in the economy that's coming from this banking system sort of financial tightening effect that we're likely to see here in the near term. Uh, so 25 from the Fed next, uh, next week with a bit of a hawkish tone, they'll acknowledge the, uh, the banking system issue that we're faced here with. Um, and they'll, they'll convey that they think that the deposit support programs that they put in place and the lending program they put in place will be sufficient to uh, mitigate that risk and ultimately then uh, reflect on the strength of the economy continuing. I think those are the nature of the, the things we'll hear from the Fed next week. So still maintaining some hawkish bias with a 25 basis point hike. I still expect that if we don't see any additional fallout from the banking system that's 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 material, 
um, the economy will continue to slow and we'll see, um, you know, the Fed possibly lift another 25 basis points at the meeting that follows. And then it's a bit of a meeting by meeting data decision after that. Perfect. Uh, Leslie, maybe I'll turn it back to you to talk about the economy at, at large. Um, so Steve touched on it uh, there and, and some expectations from the Fed. Uh, I guess, does, does the events over the, the late last week and over the weekend uh, change your view on uh, where the economy is going? Or is there any broader implications uh, uh, to the economy? Well, I think um, Steve set things up very nicely there in his references to some of the recent market events having um, a financial conditions tightening impact on the market. Um, perhaps, you know, that could be doing some of the work that would normally have to be done by the central bank to increase interest rates. Um, I think that the technology sector specifically was already in a downturn that we saw starting when uh, the stock market peaked at the beginning of 2022. And we'd been seeing fairly consistent layoffs and retrenchment within that sector. We think when you see large players that won't have the same availability for credit or funding, such as Silicon Valley Bank or Signature Bank, that that will continue to exacerbate what was already a more challenging backdrop for that sector. So we can't count that out as not having an impact on the economy. Um, I think also the banking system, banks will, and, and this this actually speaks to the, the tighter financial conditions comment, which is that the banks are going to have to offer higher rates to attract depositors. And right. um, as funds become more costly to acquire, that's going to impact their profitability. And generally, the banking sector tends to be an important one across economies and certainly is here in, in Canada. Um they're also likely to be more stringent on loan requirements, which, again, tightens financial conditions. They'll look for more diversification across their loan book and uh, the potential for increased regulation coming out of the other side, particularly for regional banks, will also tighten financial conditions. Now, I think that this financial instability, um, as Steve mentioned, will make central bankers in general more cautious about rising rates aggressively. So there is going to be a school of thought that's going to say, well, um, if rates stop increasing at this fast pace, this could be good for the economy. But I think right. you have to look behind that and say, well, how, how did we get here? What, what are the reasons that we're here? And that's that's more of a negative. Maybe the last point I'll make is that we entered this year uh, definitely concerned about the earnings outlook for Canada and for the United States, but but mostly for uh, the U.S. and S&P earnings. We've seen um, a bit of a decline in expectations coming out of the fourth quarter earnings reports that we saw in January and February, but we think that there is probably uh, more to come and that analysts haven't been um, as conservative as, as we would have expected to see around the outlook for earnings. And so we think that that could have um, that, you know, we had expected that would be a headwind for markets. We were right. surprised to see the increase in markets um, year to date. And so now I think we'll see that uh, play through for um, a different reason than we expected because of this regional banking crisis. That's great. Uh, Steve, anything to add on broader economic uh, implications? I think that, you know, Leslie covered that nicely. I mean, there, the, the, the squeeze that's going to be happening here. Um, 
is is somewhat general, you know, in in the way that banks can access uh, capital. They may deposits will flow among banks here, to, to be clear. But you think about the way banks have been paying for those deposits recently. Um, you know, many banks would would where where we, we all bank will offer uh, interest rates that are quite paltry on 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 uh, overnight deposits or or um, accessible deposits like bank accounts. Sure. Um, yes, yields have been rising, but banks haven't really had to pay a lot for um, additional deposits recently. Um, we think about now the shift that's happening here with the Fed programs put in place. Banks that were paying half a percent or one percent on a bank account as a deposit rate are now potentially going to have to go to the Fed window and pay something like five percent for that to, to replace that deposit with a loan. So that's a tightening of conditions. Now, depositors are protected here in, in the context of that lending program. And of course, as we talked about with the specific um, insured and uninsured deposit protections for SVB and Signature that have come out of these receiverships. Um, but when we think about then the transfer of risk among the bank capital structure, right? What Leslie talked about is, of course, that there's a challenge to profitability in the banking system that comes from the potential right. to have to offer a higher rate on those deposits. But in fact, what that does is it also shifts the risk down the capital structure to the to uh, you know unsecured bondholders and below. So we're going to see risk premia increasing on those areas of the bank capital structure as we look ahead. And that's that, of course, means, um, again, like Leslie said, tighter financial conditions in general. Maybe just to put a finer point on that, Steve. So it sounds like uh, challenges for regional banks um, and uh, and some of the outlook uh, that that's changed fairly dramatically. From your perspective as a, the uh, lead of our fixed income group, um, what are you expecting out of uh, fixed income markets, I guess, generally uh, from here for, for the rest of the year? Well, we've been we've been focused on adding quality with uh, across the board in our cor in our corporate book, as well as adding duration in our government exposure, and that's really been the hallmark of the last six months of of trading for us. Uh, we started to like investment grade corporate bonds um, and moving those uh, into the portfolio in favor of selling areas of high yield, uh, and uh, in particular also selling some of the leveraged loan exposure that we had enjoyed so much as protecting us from the rate hikes last year. That's really right. started in the third quarter of 2022 when we started to price in an over 5% terminal Fed funds rate into the yield curve at that time. So uh, our view has been fairly consistent here that the Fed would push Fed funds rate up above 5% to five and a quarter area. And uh, the market has sort of moved you know, in that direction later last year. And then of course, with the rebound, in risk assets that Leslie talked about really started in Q4 and continued into the into January of this year. Those the those movements really did deprice some of that. But we've been of the mindset that the Fed would get there. Uh, but in general, then what that means for us has meant for us is that we have been in favor of higher quality fixed income, favoring duration-oriented assets. So investment grade bonds, investment grade corporate spreads had widened. We like that sector, and we were funding that by selling down things like floating rate loan exposure and lower quality high yield in anticipation that we are going to see these tighter financial conditions uh, playing out in 2023. And Leslie made comments that you know, reflected that view across 
across uh, capital markets and how we've been thinking about the profit cycle for companies. Again, in the credit portfolio, you see that view has been acted on. Uh, so we like that view today, Matt. Still, and we're we're uh, you know we we actually added duration as I mentioned last week in a number of mandates prior to the the episode of with uh, SVB, and uh, ultimately I th- we think that the the negative correlation between those duration oriented areas of fixed income and equities. Well, you can see that's really playing out here in the aftermath of these events here uh, around some of the regional banks. Kind of a nice, uh, a nice characteristic of fixed income and equities, uh, especially after last year. Um, maybe uh, Leslie, get your comments on equities as a whole. Uh, you, uh, you've already mentioned a, a bit of um, sort of hawkish uh, view, call it, with uh, earnings coming in uh, or likely to come in faster than analysts expect, um, and also some uh, profitability challenges on regional banks. Um, what, what's uh, the overall outlook for your equity market uh, this year and has it changed fundamentally uh, over the past week? So I would say it really hasn't changed, but I think there's probably even more emphasis on risk right now in your mm-hmm. positioning. And when we talked about equities over the last few months, we really focused on companies where they had good visibility for earnings and um you know, lower risk or lower volatility around those earnings. And we describe those as, quote, earnings now companies. Now, when we talked about that, we were mostly talking about the technology sector where earnings expectations were far into the future. And so I think the the recent events have sort of confirmed those views. But I, I don't want people to diminish the importance of managing risk in an environment like this. Volatility has certainly increased, and we expect that it will uh, remain elevated uh, until there is a perceived greater stability in financial markets than we've seen today and in, in the most recent days. Um, the equity risk premium for equities was very low and you know really priced for we thought equities were really priced for perfection and when you right. see events like we've seen transpire you can see how quickly uh, imperfection infiltrates the market and so you always want to make sure that you're getting paid for the risk that you're taking in equities and I'm just not sure that we're there uh, yet today now of course we still believe in the long-term thesis around equities and the recovery in the eventual recovery in the economy but we do have some significant headwinds to get through before we get to that point. And I think those are just being really highlighted today. You know, there's uh, a saying around, you know, the Fed will keep going until something breaks. And um, you and I talked about this on on the last podcast. You asked me the question specifically about the Bank of Canada last week right. and whether I saw whether I saw the Bank of Canada uh, cutting this year. And I almost sort of laughed it off at the time and said, <laughs> "No, you know, absolutely not." But if that were the case, something bad would have really had to happen. And then, um, you know, for risk assets, that would be a very negative backdrop. Well, imagine, you know, seven days later, we're having another discussion. And the calculus has really changed. And Steve did a great job highlighting how much that's changed and how the bond market has reflected that change. I'm just not sure today whether equities have really uh, priced in the added risks that we're seeing in, in the market for today. Well, Leslie, Steve, thank you so much for uh, coming on the podcast in, in fairly short order uh, and making a uh, fairly complicated situation uh, a little bit more understandable. So I appreciate uh, both of you participating and uh, thanks again. Thanks, Matt. Thank you, Matt. 
content of this podcast, including facts, views, opinions, and recommendations, is not to be used or construed as investment advice and is not an offer or an invitation to buy or sell any security. The content of this podcast should not be relied upon for any purposes and McKenzie Financial Corporation is not responsible for any reliance upon it. This podcast includes forward-looking information that reflects our current expectations or forecasts of future events. Forward-looking information is subject to risks, uncertainties, and assumptions that could cause actual results to differ materially from those expressed herein. Our views are subject to change based on market conditions. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fund facts and prospectus before investing. The indicated rates of returns are historical annual compounded total returns, including changes to unit values and reinvestment of all dividends or distributions and does not take into account sales, redemptions, distribution, or optional charges or income taxes payable by any security holder that would have reduced returns.